televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the internet and technology and how they're shaping culture and changing every aspect of our lives. How it's glorious and awe-inspiring, but can also have a dark side. And maybe how we can prevent some of its abuses. In this hour-long holiday special, I'll be joined by Sophia Bruckner, an artist, designer, and futurist, to talk about social media and how it's been co-opting the word sharing. When you share something, share, I'm saying, I'm using air quotes, on social media, you don't really even know who's seeing it because Facebook doesn't show it to every single person who's your friend. There's an algorithm in, in the background that's deciding who sees what you've posted. You don't even know who you're sharing with. And it's asynchronous. So like the only way of really feeling like you're having any sort of shared experience with this other person is through this anxious refreshing, checking for likes and comments. That's not how if you were actually in person sharing a story with somebody, that's not how it would be. It's a very strange asynchronous experience where you're not even sure who you are talking to. More from Sophia in the middle of the show. And to close out, Rick is joined by KPFK's own Brad Friedman of bradblog.com to wrap up the 2020 election. But first... Vaccine rollouts have continued throughout the United States. Meanwhile, the country has reached over 16 million infections and 300,000 deaths. Experts worry that vaccine distributions could be hampered by constraints on supplies. But despite the ramp up in distribution, much is still unknown about the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. With us today to talk about COVID vaccine development is Chris Azizian, Chief Pharmacy Officer at the University of Southern California. He discusses how vaccines work, how long immunity lasts, the vaccine's effectiveness in the minority community, and vaccine preparedness for the next pandemic. He is joined by Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Anthony Fauci offered an aggressive rollout of the vaccines in the U.S. Your thoughts? I can say that there'll be an initial phase where we'll have some scarcity in vaccines being shipped to us sometime in mid-December for administration to what's been categorized as a phase 1A for healthcare workers, which primarily include healthcare personnel and residents of long-term care facilities. By the end of December, it's projected that we'll have about 40 million doses between both Moderna and Pfizer, which should be sufficient for actually 20 million individuals to get vaccinated. Having said that, it's really anticipated that the ramp up in production, we're really looking at the second quarter of 2021 for there to be sufficient vaccines available to vaccinate the entire population. Our challenge really is around folks trusting the science and the vaccine and actually getting vaccinated. So we'll have to do some education around that. So around April, there should be enough vaccine. And definitely by June, there will be plenty of vaccine for all individuals to get vaccinated. For many, we look at vaccine development and usually they take around 
a decade to develop. This time around has taken about a year, year and a half, which begs the question, will the vaccines be safe? Yes, so based on initial data that we have, particularly in the first several months of uh, the trials, the vaccines seem to have demonstrated all the required safety components that would apply to all other vaccines. And so from a safety perspective, I personally feel that the vaccine is very safe and so does the government and so does the science behind it. I think there are several reasons why these particular vaccines moved at a faster speed than others. You don't usually have the usual bureaucracy around documentation and it going from one agency to another for approval. Second, these vaccines are mRNA vaccines, which make them easier to develop in labs. You don't have to, for example, wait for particles to grow in chicken eggs, etc. So that's why I think there are a lot of components that have led to these vaccines to come to market sooner than others. Plus, through warp speed, you have all hands on deck, basically looking at data and uh, to ensure that things are moving through the appropriate processes a lot quicker than they would normally do. So if you can go into the rest of the population, is there going to be like a tiered approach? Are we then going to go towards first the most vulnerable populations and then the younger, healthier populations? Yes, I think originally when the advisory committee on immunization practices, which is the the committee that informed CDC on vaccinations, was looking at this, there were four groups that they wanted to really prioritize, which are healthcare personnel, workers in essential and critical industries, people at high risk getting COVID due to their underlying medical conditions, and then population of age 65 and older. So I think those are the primary categories that we're looking to vaccinate more immediately than for it to expand to the younger population, essentially the general population. Going back to the development process of the vaccine, how were the trials conducted? And if you can reiterate to us, how were they conducted so quickly? Yes, yeah, so I think one, you have scientists that were already working on various treatments based on mRNA. And so they took from past experiences to kind of develop the vaccine, one. Two, as soon as we had the pandemic, there was sufficient funding by the federal government for the main vaccine producers, which allowed them to very quickly enroll and enlist patients into the study. So I believe both trials have about 30 to 60,000 patients enrolled. They were able to analyze and evaluate any safety-related issues for the vaccines, and then put the data in front of our ACIP committee in order to apply for an emergency use authorization. You've mentioned mRNA for people who don't understand. How is that different? It contains the genetic material from the COVID-19 virus that then is inserted into our cells. It's inactive. It instructs our cells to make a protein that the COVID-19 virus uses to attach itself to in order to activate. I believe it's called the spike protein. And once our cells make copies of these proteins, uh, they destroy the genetic material that was from the vaccine, then our body recognizes that protein 
and that it should not be there. And then it produces the appropriate immune response through our fighter cells, which are the T and B lymphocytes that not only fight the, the virus, but also remember it the next time it comes around. We have a much lower response. When you say that it's part of the genetic material, how is that really safe? You're getting a piece of the gene that then helps instruct to stimulate these proteins. There are currently like what we call live attenuated vaccines that are produced that actually have a weakened version of a live virus that then stimulate the immune response. This is not the case with mRNA. What are some of the symptoms of the vaccines and should we be concerned about them? At least with the Moderna and Pfizer, some of the symptoms that have been reported after the first dose, there's been some fever, headaches, myalgia, which is muscle aches, similar to flu-like symptoms. It's actually very normal. It tells you your body's doing what it's supposed to do. Okay. And how long do those symptoms last? The symptoms have lasted one to two days. Tell us about some of the temperature requirements of Moderna and Pfizer and What kind of challenges do some of these temperature requirements have? So actually, the Pfizer vaccine requires storage in ultra-low temperatures. It requires storage at negative 70 degrees Celsius, which is very low temp. And so the challenge here for facilities or organizations that are trying to acquire and procure and store the vaccine is that you don't find too many minus 80 freezers. People have either refrigeration or regular minus 30 freezers. And so we and many health systems are working to establish capacity from a storage perspective in in purchasing ultra-low freezers to be able to handle the Pfizer vaccine in itself. The Moderna vaccine requires storage at a minus 20 Celsius which is your normal freezer, basically. On to a different topic. There have been trust issues in the past between people of color and the medical community. And so some are asking, will the vaccine prove to be as effective among non-white populations and will they get their fair share of the vaccines? Yes, uh, I think both manufacturers, actually all manufacturers, have done a very good job with enrolling populations that are ethnically diverse into their studies uh, and will have continuous data points available to us on all populations. So from a safety perspective, to date, we have not heard any issues as related to different ethnic populations. From an access perspective, this will also not really be an issue. There'll be outreach programs. You'll have access to these drugs and most of your community pharmacies, once they are abundantly available and have made it through the various phases. So access will not be an issue. And financially, you know, because the federal government has essentially secured millions of doses of vaccine for the population, folks are unlikely to have to pay for vaccine as well. Okay, but we know that there are going to be two dosages. All the information that we've received is based on initial shipments, actually, they're recommending us to administer doses to as many people as we can. And because we're submitting data on a daily basis back to the state, which then also transmits to the government, they'll have second doses reserved for us. If enough people get vaccinated, does it mean that I don't have to bother getting vaccinated if if there's more than 50% who will get vaccinated? 
that is absolutely not the case. The goal is to vaccinate as many people as possible. I think there's a couple of things people need to remember. We don't yet have data that these vaccines actually prevent getting infected. Remember, vaccines just boost your immunity to fight the infection. And so there's currently no data saying if you get the vaccine, you're not going to get COVID-19. But if you do get COVID-19, your body is prepared and it's very likely that you'll be asymptomatic because it's fighting the vaccine without you because it knows how to fight it and therefore you're unlikely to show symptoms. However, you can still get it, be asymptomatic and can transmit it to other people. Additionally, only Moderna has released that the immunity currently is at a minimum three months. So we don't yet know if the vaccine is going to give us immunity that lasts for a longer duration than that. I think putting those two factors together, we want everyone to be vaccinated. We will still ask people to wear their masks, continue to wash their hands and socially distance. That may be a disappointment for some people who want to go back to normal. I think resuming normalcy after such a devastating pandemic, honestly, is going to take a little time. I think we can start seeing people move more towards normalcy after maybe the third quarter of next year. But normalcy still being cautious, right? Uh, because it all depends on how many people actually get the vaccine and how good of a job we can all do in educating to make sure everyone uh, understands that the vaccines are safe and that they should get vaccinated. What do you tell people who say, I don't want to get vaccinated? I don't feel like I should be forced to get vaccinated. There's no way that while these vaccines are under emergency use authorization, uh, have been approved under an EUA, that you can mandate people getting vaccines. What I can say to people is if they don't get vaccinated, they're taking a huge risk, not only in with their own safety, but with the safety of their family members and the safety of the population. And if we are looking to move towards some sort of normalcy as soon as possible, the best route to that path is through vaccination. And just going back to what Moderna said, where the immunity may only last three months, why is it so temporary? Why can't it be like other vaccines where they last forever? Well, I think part of this is continuously looking at data in real life. The studies with Moderna and Pfizer are, are, have not stopped and will not because there'll be clinical studies looking at patient populations and the efficacy of these vaccines. We'll likely know uh, its true potential in a year or a year and a half as we get more information, as more folks get vaccinated. Okay. In other words, we don't really know how well it works, so that's why we need to vaccinate often. Exactly. And so what we know is at a minimum three months plus, because that's what they have data for. So this is one pandemic, but that doesn't mean that there won't be more. What have we learned from this COVID experience and how can we better be prepared for the next time around? I guess it depends on the type of pandemic, but if it's a similar type or that's virus related, I think we're going to learn very quickly and technology is going to rapidly improve in making these vaccines and potentially even combining some of these vaccines. For example, there's a potential for the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine to be combined into one to be able to, I guess, for convenience reasons and for folks to essentially get a vaccine from a one-stop shop perspective. 
I think our response to future pandemic will have to come together more quickly as a country, and hopefully our country won't be divided like it has been throughout this one. I think we'll have to quickly trust and rely on our science and the, and the data that's made available. A specific example I can give is when we first started treating patients in March, we really didn't have a lot of information. And so to that end, we ended up losing many patients that were hospitalized. But as we progressed very quickly and data was shared and there was enhanced communication amongst providers in the clinical world, we are now able to manage the COVID-19 disease much, much better with much improved outcomes than we did in March or April. We had a drug in our arsenal that was a steroid that we stayed away from initially in dexamethasone because we thought it would continue to immune suppress these patient populations and would put them in a deeper state. Whereas in the later stages, we identified that this is a critical drug in actually helping them with their respiratory symptoms uh, and preventing them from being intubated. So I think, uh, again, there's going to need to be a lot of data sharing much faster and for us to be able to trust the science much faster than we were able to this go around. And just the last question, let's just say we have another pandemic from another animal, because from what we know from this coronavirus, that it was an animal to human transmission. Are we going to have to develop another vaccine or is there going to someday be a vaccine that can address different coronaviruses? I think the potential, again, with the improvement in technology in these mRNA vaccines is very high for one vaccine to handle multiple type of viral infections or prevent multiple type of viral infections. An example I have is with the flu virus, because we already have gone through the process and have our basics worked out as far as developing the vaccine, annually they can make these vaccines in, in two to three months, just identifying the new strands and the new mutation. So it's very easy for them to manipulate the vaccines to be able to address what we're seeing annually in flu, and I anticipate the same thing happening once we have this ready and activated and um, have the appropriate infrastructure to make it. Well, it sounds very hopeful. It does. As individuals and human beings, we're very resilient, and the technology has been also very helpful. So we just need to trust the people that know what they're doing to do their job. Well, thanks for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me. That was USC Chief Pharmacy Officer Chris Azizian speaking with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. There is hope on the horizon. Remember to wear your mask. We talk a lot about social media on this show, how it's tracking you, you're not the customer, you're what they're selling, how it's influencing how you think, and how disinformation spreads online. And another thing that social media has done is co-opted language in a lot of ways, especially the meaning of the word sharing. I'm joined by Sophia Bruckner. She's an assistant professor at the University of Michigan Stamp School of Art and Design. And she wrote a piece about how sharing is not broadcasting. We talk about what that means, some positivity Sophia's found in the dark place that can be the YouTube comment section, and some alternative ideas for social networks. But first, we start with Sophia's background. 
I'm an artist and designer now, but what's interesting is that I used to be a software engineer in the Bay Area during early social media. I was in the thick of it when all of these technologies were merging and we were making a lot of the design choices that determine how we are using these things today. You recently wrote a piece about social media that you called sharing is not broadcasting. Can you explain the difference you see between sharing and broadcasting and what that means on social media? I, I was involved in the design of a lot of early social media. And there were a lot of us who had a vision for how these things could be different. So I worked at Google, by the way. We were coming up with all these interesting ideas for what social networking could be using the technologies that we were developing there. But when Facebook became a popular thing, Almost everything we started to do at Google was a reaction to Facebook. And it was extremely disappointing that eventually all of these experimental ideas got pushed aside and we were re-implementing how Facebook worked. And so that model just spread. It was it went to Facebook. Then we were developing at the time Google Plus, which worked very similarly to Facebook. And it, I think people forgot that there are other ways you could use technology to connect besides the Facebook model. We were very particular about vocabulary. We we're trying to choose words that did, had the most positive connotations. And I understand why the, the people who are choosing those words are doing what they're doing. But what's happened is that the word sharing has become something that it never meant before. Sharing has become broadcasting because of social media. And the reason why these companies decided to use the word sharing is because it has such strong positive connotations. It's something that's generous. It's unselfish. It's a way to connect with people. It's this vulnerable and empathetic action. That's why these tech companies decided to use the word share throughout technologies they were developing. However, because of the way these technologies work, all of these technologies are dependent upon ads for revenue. You're not paying to use Facebook. You're not paying to use Instagram. You're the way that you're actually like paying to use these so-called free services is by your eyeballs being on ads, the collection of data from you that can be used to target ads. One of the interesting facts is that Facebook's 71 billion dollars, 98.5 of their percent of their revenue comes from ads. Anytime you're using something online that's free, it's not free. You're paying with your attention or you're paying with your data. Through all of these social networks we're using, you're paying for them, but you're paying with your attention, you're paying with your data. And as a result, all of these technologies are designed to optimize for that. And so the word sharing in almost any social network I can think of actually means broadcasting monetizable content. When you're sharing, you're broadcasting something that can be shown alongside an ad. You're broadcasting something that can be used to collect useful data about you for the targeting of ads. These aren't really sharing in the traditional definition of the word. Let me read you the definition of from the dictionary. I'm looking at the Merriam-Webster dictionary's definition of sharing, which means to partake of, use, experience, occupy, or enjoy with others or to have in common. And that's not what's really happening with social media today. And now there are these newer definitions of sharing, which really are the synonym for broadcasting. So on the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, you now see sharing also means distributing on the internet, posting on a social media platform. And if you look at the original definition of sharing, which means to experience with others, enjoy with others... That, there's a pretty big difference between that and distributing on the internet or posting on a social media platform. 
this has happened so slowly that people haven't even noticed that the word share has evolved to this new meaning. That really worries me, especially because there is no synonym for sharing in the English language. A lot of my listeners know that most of these social media companies are not really designed, again, to harbor connection back to what we were saying. It's really about selling ads. And in your piece, you brought up a really great question about what would a social network look like that's designed to focus on presence and generosity and and maybe more of the, the original definition of sharing. Could you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Most social networks now are very asynchronous. You post something and then people interact with it on their own schedule. And that results in you doing this anxious refreshing to see if you got likes or comments usually very superficial comments. And that's not what sharing should be. Sharing should really be this share experience that you are having with another person in real time. And I'm not saying that can't be facilitated by technology, but I don't think that the existing social networks we have are encouraging that, sometimes not even allowing for it. When you share something, share, I'm saying, I'm using air quotes, on social media, you don't really even know who's seeing it because Facebook doesn't show it to every single person who's your friend. There's an algorithm in in the background that's deciding who sees what you've posted. You don't even know who you're sharing with. And it's asynchronous. So like the only way of really feeling like you're having any sort of shared experience with this other person is through this anxious refreshing, checking for likes and comments. That's not how, if you were actually in person sharing a story with somebody, that's not how it would be. It's a very strange asynchronous experience where you're not even sure who you are talking to. But then came COVID. And for a lot of people, they lost in-person connection. Yeah, before COVID, we all knew that these technologies were limited. And a lot of people were becoming increasingly frustrated and quitting them. But because of COVID, we've turned to them because there's nothing else available to us right now. We're all isolated at home alone. And we want to connect with people. And there aren't other ways to connect. Yeah, that are as easy, right? Log on Facebook, check. You don't have to coordinate. You can show up, Um, refresh. Serendipitous interactions with people are gone, basically. You you can schedule a Zoom call with people, but any sort of serendipitous interaction with people you would meet at work or going around throughout the day, those are all gone. And I think we miss it. And we're looking to social media to fill it. I miss serendipitous interactions with people. I'm an introvert, but I things are definitely getting to me, despite my introversion. And yeah, so you can only imagine what the extroverts are going through right now. I wanted to talk about your project Under One Sky, because that seems like a place where a social network creates a lot of positivity. And it also happens to be on one of the most negative social networks. Part of my work is speculating on what social networks could be. And also part of my work is noticing where there are pockets of positivity. Maybe these technologies weren't really designed to facilitate this, but somehow people are using these as these positive social networks. I think it's really empowering to even notice where people are using technologies to connect in a way that's not performative. And so Under One Sky is this project where I've noticed, this is for 10 years, I've been collecting these videos. But I've noticed that like people who share videos that they record of the sky and add music, there is no toxicity at all on their comments. YouTube is really toxic normally in the comments. It's like one of the most toxic platforms. It's notoriously one of the most toxic places for comments. 
But when I, I started noticing like 10 years ago, and it's this is still true today, and uh, it's true across cultures, that when you look at the videos, like the videos are just people recording the sky, like they're looking at clouds floating by. And often they add like music that they think illustrates how they feel about the sky. Mm -hmm. And you read the comments, they are ridiculously nice and polite. <laughs> Like across cultures, across languages, because I've, I've translated the comments, it's this really weird, positive subculture on YouTube. So I made a project focusing on this. It makes me feel more empowered to notice that people are using these, like the, one of the most toxic technologies like YouTube, where and to see that people are using it in this way that's really generous and really kind, it makes me really feel hopeful. I think we could like look at it as inspiration for how to design things in the future. Yeah, I think it's it's beautiful. When I was reading that, I was like, wow, I that's that's it's nice that as you said, that there can be this illustration of positivity in a place that's toxic. It's ridiculously nice. Everybody's like politely asking for use of the clouds. They're saying thank you. They're saying, please share what you've made with this because I'd love to see it. Like, I mean, there's like all this thankfulness and generosity. It's like it's astonishing for YouTube. And it's almost that type of sharing that maybe is a little less broadcasting. I think it is a little less broadcasting because we all look at the sky and it looks the same everywhere, which makes it interesting that everybody wants to record it and share it with their music. There's this universal love of looking at the sky and like the, the understanding that we're all under the same sky. There's something quite nice about it. And that niceness seems to have inhabited YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought? Another project you worked on recently, I don't know how much detail you can talk about it, is the project Warming Wall. Could you talk about one, what it is, and two, how it's influenced maybe ideas for a better social network? Yeah. So I've been really thinking about if I was to create a social network, which is really centered around presence and generosity, how would I do that? And I'm sure there's more than one way you could do this, but the way I've been exploring is shared warmth. And the reason I focus on warmth is because also across cultures, warmth is associated with social connection. So no matter where you are, like we use metaphors that are related to how connected you feel to someone often involve warmth. I have been thinking about how to connect people who are incarcerated. So they're literally cut off from the world around them through walls I want to connect them with the community outside, which tends to ignore them. And I want to use the wall as the interface to connect them. So I live in Michigan. I work in Ann Arbor. And I think there's probably like eight prisons within 45 minutes of Ann Arbor. Like really a huge amount of prisons. And day to day, people completely ignore this. They avoid it. The people who are incarcerated are cut off. And so I'm really thinking about how could I use the architecture of these spaces to actually connect people. So I've been thinking about how to actually take a, a physical wall and use it as an interface to connect people with the outside through warmth. What I envision is that the wall will become warm when other people are present. So it allows people to be together and share warmth and presence. And I really like the idea of the thing that separates people becoming the bridge that connects people. There's a lot of reasons I could go into about why um, using it like a haptic of physical sensation has good therapeutic effects, but technology is capable of connecting people this way where you're being with each other and it's, it's egoless. You can, you can make these egoless connections between people through technology. The social networks we have don't allow for that yet. 
And my first iteration actually is going to be probably in February. I'm going to create like a social network of space heaters because of COVID. And so obviously having a wall that people touch is like touching things is not a great idea right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use space heaters to produce radiant heat. And I'm going to try to connect people who are in the U of M hospital with my studio and also people at the gallery. But I'm going to try to connect people through warmth so that people are like sitting together, waiting together, being together. It's totally egoless. It's totally anonymous. You're having a shared presence of another person. And one of the reasons I think this is really important right now during COVID is that in the hospital, like you can't even bring people in with you to give you support. So one of the places I'm really thinking about is like the chemo suite at the U of M hospital. So normally people would be able to bring people with them to get chemo, but now you have to go in alone because of COVID. And so I'm thinking like, how could I remotely wait with this person or be with them while they're doing this? Other places where people have to wait alone and could really use some support. Like how can I build a technology that facilitates that without it, you know, being about performance or being about ego. And so I've been using simple warmth to do that. My first iteration is going to be this space heater project in the hospital. And then eventually I'm going to be working on how to transform the architecture of a carceral space to connect people with the community outside. I think that is a beautiful thing, bringing warmth to people in the hospital and then eventually to those who are incarcerated. I suspect most people don't spend much of their time thinking about the prison population. And you know, like when I do, it, it really depresses me. It depresses me a lot too. But what I think about is if we hadn't ignored them, if we hadn't ignored them, if we hadn't ignored people in nursing homes, like maybe we wouldn't be so lonely right now during COVID. Like maybe we would have built technologies that address the, the, the loneliness we're feeling right now if we had actually focused on these populations beforehand. Do you think that haptic-based technology is more powerful than sharing text online or, or video? I don't know if I would say it's more powerful. I think it's underutilized. So much our sense of being connected with others is related to physical feelings. I think it has a particular strength to make people feel connected. And it's not something that we've really explored yet. So I think it's, it's something that we should explore, like creating a sense of a haptic sense of presence. But I do think that, that, that it's possible to feel connected with others through text. So the one project I also have in the article, which I haven't mentioned yet, is this project where I've been collecting all the Kindle popular highlights from Amazon Kindle books, in particular with romance novels. And so what I've noticed is that people are highlighting all these passages about loneliness and grief. And the thing I noticed about these passages that people highlight, they aren't the thing that people will share to look smart on Goodreads. They're not highlighting these because it's a useful bookmark. So like there's not like the highlighting of, of these passages isn't like some ego filled thing. I think they're highlighting these passages because they're in agreement with the other people who are feeling the loneliness and grief. And so it's actually this beautiful, beautiful alternative social network where people are sharing um, their vulnerability with each other anonymously. And it's done without any performative aspect. There's no ego involved. It's something that people are doing. It's completely text-based. And so, and, and it's really powerful. So I think it can be done through text, but I do think that like haptics, it's something that we should be exploring in the future to create a sense of connection with others. Yeah. So one of those quotes was, she felt her aloneness all the way to the bone. She was alone in a way she'd never before imagined, as solitary as if she were an astronaut come untethered from the mothership, 
drifting unnoticed in an emptiness so vast it was beyond comprehension. Yeah, that quote (laughs) strikes me. That quote really was striking because in order for it to become a Kindle popular highlight, enough people had to independently highlight that passage by themselves. And then it becomes a popular highlight and then people re-highlight it in agreement. But enough people highlighted that passage by themselves that it became a Kindle popular highlight. Um, And that's definitely not a quote that I think people would be sharing on Goodreads in order to look smart. Or sharing on the internet generally. It's that's something that people would that would make people feel really embarrassed and terrible. But through this feature on Kindle, you could see that it's resonating with people and they're highlighting it in agreement with each other. And it's formed this sort of beautiful anonymous social interaction where that feels more real it feels very real you have your internet life and then your real life uh, and this feels much closer to the real version than the look how awesome my life is based on my instagram photos well nobody is gonna post that quote to facebook Nobody I know who might feel like this quote resonates with them that's not something they would share with 2000 facebook friends The vast majority of people are not going to share this, but in actuality, a lot of people resonating with this. And that's, I think, to the the whole point of this is that there's a manufactured reality where you're broadcasting to large groups of of people and you're going to broadcast your best self and not your actual self, which thereby makes you feel more empty in the end. Yeah, I think so. Because broadcasting, it's like you're sending energy out and you're not getting anything back. Sharing, I think, is like you really feel this like reciprocal energy and it's you feel good. But if you broadcast and broadcast and broadcast, I think by the end you feel really drained. Because you're sharing a lot on social media and you don't feel closer to people, that isn't your fault. You, you're actually broadcasting. You're not actually sharing and what you really need to do is you need to think about how you can use the technologies that you're at available to you to actually try to create something closer to what sharing is supposed to be. So I guess I would say like, be kind to yourself if you feel lonely, no matter how much you are sharing. And I'm putting this in air quotes, but think about how you might be able to use Zoom or some of these other, like the phone to f- actually feel like you're sharing with people. So maybe to avoid a sense of feeling like you're performing for others, like Zoom, if you're looking at each other on the screen, it can really feel like a performance. But maybe if you're using Zoom to like bake Christmas cookies or do some other sort of holiday craft project together, that would probably feel a lot more like what sharing should be. And to to really think about it, like every time you use the word share, to question yourself, ask yourself if you're really sharing or if you're using sharing the way that social networks are teaching you to share, which is not sharing. And to take the technologies that you're relying on now, like Zoom and the phone and all the social networks that we have now and think about them, like how can you actually use them to really share? That was Sophia Bruckner talking about her work in social networks and how sharing is not broadcasting. You can find out all about Sophia's work at sophiabruckner.com. That's S-O-P-H-I-A-B-R-U-E-C-K-N-E-R.com. To close out the show, Rick is joined by KPFK's own Brad Friedman, 
to wrap up the ongoing 2020 conversation about the election and voting machines. I am joined today by Brad Friedman. Hey, Rick. How are you, sir? I'm uh, doing uh, pretty good now that things are rolling along toward a real presidency. (laughs) (laughs) In theory. (laughs) In in theory. So far, so good. Knock on wood. There's wood here. (laughs) So let people know uh, you are on KPFK, and where else can uh, people find you? We are live on KPFK on Mondays at 3, as the broadcast is five days a week, internationally syndicated all around the world. You can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site or, of course, at kpfk.org five days a week. Okay, I'm confused. All this time, for years, as you know, I thought these voting machines were rigged in Republicans' favor. Now I'm hearing that not only didn't they flip the election to Trump, they flipped it to Biden. Please explain that. Well, yeah, that's what uh, that's what Team Trump and the MAGA mob are claiming. Sadly, shamefully, they don't really have any evidence to back any of that up. As far as your concerns all of these years, uh, the voting systems were flipping elections to Republicans. Well, they might have been. The same concerns exist, whether it's flipping elections to Republicans or flipping them to Democrats. The fact that we use these proprietary computer systems where the public cannot know whether a uh, an election result is accurate, that is the real problem. Because remember, even though a computer voting system can be rigged, that does not mean that it was rigged. But the bigger problem is, at the end of the day, all of the public, whether you're on the winning side or the losing side, needs to know that the results are accurate and reflect the intent of the voter. Right now, the systems we use don't allow that in many cases, and that's a grave danger to democracy that I believe believe we have seen uh, played out over the last month or so, where the uh, Trump folks are able to make these extraordinary claims, but it's, in many cases, difficult to prove them wrong because we use these secret voting and and tabulation computers. Okay, so the uh, Trump people do have a point that there is no real way of telling who won the election, and many of the points they took from you from years ago warning us about these machines, and they kind of flipped what you had to say on its head, right? Well, uh, almost right. I mean, in fact, if the Republicans were out there making the case that we don't know who actually won and lost— I might actually agree with them. They are not making that case. They are out there claiming that the election was stolen, was flipped from uh, Trump to Biden. They have no evidence to back up that claim. Instead, what they're doing is they're citing 10, 12-year-old reporting of mine from bradblog.com, a deep dive investigative reports that I did at the time on uh, a number of the voting machine companies like Dominion, who they have demonized in all of this, claiming that Dominion voting systems are flipping votes to Joe Biden. They have no evidence for that. And they claim, however, that it is an international conspiracy tied to Venezuela and Hugo Chavez, who died seven years ago. But what they've done in the bargain is they've used reporting of mine that did, in fact, talk about the relationship between some of the voting machine companies about a decade ago when there was some takeover attempts and then some uh, successful mergers and, and purchases 
purchases of some of these voting machine companies, one of them was, in fact, tied to Hugo Chavez many, many years ago. That does not really come into play at all. It was a company named Smartmatic who has no contracts whatsoever in the U.S., except for one, which, by the way, now happens to be right here in Los Angeles County, which has contracted Smartmatic to create our new unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. But as far as the uh, swing states go and the, the states that the Republicans are trying to contest, Smartmatic has absolutely nothing to do with it. Venezuela has nothing to do with it. Dead Hugo Chavez has nothing to do with it. But they've taken my reporting and sort of twisted it around to make these extraordinary claims, which are laughable on their face. There has been a long-running federal court case by uh, a group named CoalitionForGoodGovernance.org, and they've been doing a tremendous job of revealing the problems with these voting systems and the fact that they are unsecured, that they are unverifiable, and that, in fact, as a federal judge determined, that makes them unconstitutional. So a federal judge in Georgia just last year ordered that Georgia get rid of its 20-year-old, unverifiable, debold touchscreen voting systems, which they did because they were ordered to by federal court. And sadly, instead of taking the advice of uh, voting system and cybersecurity experts to move to a hand-marked paper ballot system, the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia, a guy by the name of Brad Raffensperger, giving all of us Brads a bad name, <laughs> he decided to buy a new unverifiable touchscreen voting system, one that was made by Dominion, and that is where you begin to get into the ridiculous conspiracy theory that uh, Team Trump and the MAGA mob are trying to tie to Dominion as some huge scheme to steal the election from Trump. You know, maybe they did. There is absolutely no evidence to support that allegation. There is a whole lot of evidence to uh, dispute that allegation, but that is the claim they're making, and that's how we got here. And, of course, the Republicans have nobody but themselves to blame because there was a whole bunch of folks, including Democrats and including, you know, nonpartisan election integrity folks like myself who were begging Georgia and its Republican Secretary of State not to go to these voting systems. You know, right. for years, Republicans have claimed all of the claims they are making now were conspiracy theories and sore loserism, suddenly they have decided they are election integrity champions. <laughs> and, you know, I'd love if that were true, but frankly, it does not appear to be the case. Early on, right after the election in November, I had called on these Republicans who were claiming concerns about the voting machines, specifically in Georgia, to join me in calling for all hand-marked paper ballots to be publicly hand-counted on election night at the polling place in Georgia on January 5th, when we have these critical U.S. Senate runoffs coming up, two races that will determine control of the U.S. Senate for the next two years. If they were really concerned about Dominion, they would be joining my invitation uh, to call for all hand-marked paper ballots and all hand-counted, and that would get Dominion completely out of the state of Georgia. 
But so far, none of those Republicans seem to be taking up that call for some odd reason. You uh, just answered my next question, part A. Part B is, actually there's B and C. B (laughs) is, didn't they end up hand counting them? And C, is that one of the reasons the Trump people are so upset because those uh, mail-in ballots are the closest thing to a paper trail there is? Well, let's be clear. The Trump team is upset because they lost the election. There is no evidence that they were screwed over in any way, shape, or form. And yes, in fact, all of the ballots statewide, it was sort of unprecedented. We have now counted all of those ballots in one way or another three different times. On election night and the days immediately after on uh, the you know optical scan systems. Then the Secretary of State, the Republican, called for a statewide hand count of every ballot in the state. That Brad guy. Yeah, that Brad guy. The other Brad. The bad Brad, not the (laughs) good Brad. Brad, I love it. uh, And then there was a third count when the Trump campaign exercised their right to request an official recount. And that official recount comes on the same computers that counted them in the first place, either correctly or incorrectly. Who knows, unless you count them by hand. Well, what we found is that all three counts were almost identical, and that Joe Biden did, in fact, win by a little bit more than 12,000 votes, according to the ballots that we have. Now, remember, about three-quarters of those ballots are paper ballots, but they are computer-marked by these touchscreen systems, computer-marked and and printed out. And after an election, there is no way to know whether those computer-marked paper ballots actually reflect the intent of any voter, because we know that voters, the vast majority, do not check their printouts. And we know, because of academic studies, that 93% of voters do not notice when the computer has flipped one or more of their votes. Therein lies the rub. Yeah. So in the end, you know, this is what we have. We have these uh, three quarters of the ballots are computer marked ballots. We can't know if they reflect the intent of the voters. But remember, these are the systems that Republicans have been fighting like hell for. Uh, for years. And in fact, some Democrats have been fighting for them as well. That's why we have a similar system here now in, uh, in Los Angeles, shamefully. These are the ones we have to work with. And so far, every single account uh, has shown that, yes, Donald Trump lost the election in Georgia and all of these other states. And if anyone wants to hear our interview earlier this year when it was the preliminaries, Brad tells us about that, and that's archived on digitalvillage.org. Okay, one more question. I'm trying to end on a positive note here, Brad. Can we Can we hope <laughs> that enough Republicans, along with the Democrats, will heretofore and be concerned enough to work toward a truly hand-marked, verifiable paper ballot? Do you think this will start jolting them in the right, by that I mean correct, uh, mm-hmm. direction? You know, I... I'm hopeful uh, because there are a whole bunch of Republicans now for the first time who have newfound interest in this issue. I think a lot of it is based on partisanship. 
So I think as soon as we sort of get beyond the current partisan moment, I think a lot of those folks will fade away. We saw something similar. If you go back to 2004, there were a lot of Democrats who were concerned about election integrity. At that time, it was Diebold, which is now out of business. And so you sort of have the Republican version uh, almost 20 years later. The new villain is Dominion. And I think that, you know, as some Democrats eventually moved on from 2004, we'll see some Republicans moving on from 2020. But my hope is that as with the group that developed after 2004, there'll be enough that hang around and continue the fight that are legitimately concerned about American democracy and the ability for the public to know that election results were recorded accurately. Uh, I'm hoping we'll see at least a few more Republicans who now take this issue seriously. I'm hopeful. I'm not yet encouraged that will be the case, but I I remain hopeful, and maybe when we come out of this, we'll have a larger, stronger election integrity movement to uh, really try to move the ball forward on these uh, god-awful systems that we have been punished with for 20 years or more. And if that is the case, it, that will be after the Republicans have used those machines to uh, elect the two senators from Georgia. <laughs> well, it might be. You know, I've said for many, many years in frustration that it will not be until a Republican feels like they have been screwed by these systems in a big election before we actually see some action done on them. Maybe this is the moment. It's hard to know because Donald Trump is so deranged and out of his mind and out of touch with actual facts and reality. It's hard to know if these folks will actually settle on some of the very real issues that they are accidentally touching upon, uh, but still sort of missing entirely. So th this story remains to be told. Unfortunately, I suspect I will stay on this beat for uh, a few uh, a few years uh, longer. And uh, frankly, uh, you, Rick, and Doran were on this beat even before me uh, at Digital Village. So you all deserve great credit for that. And thank you for continuing uh, to cover it. And thank you, Brad Friedman, for being on Digital Village. And uh, all the best, my friend. Stay safe. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Brad and Rick. We've covered a lot this episode. Leilani Albano interviewed USC's Chief Pharmacy Officer, Chris Zazian, who breaks down all we need to know about the COVID-19 vaccines. We talked about how social media has co-opted the use of the word sharing and some alternative social networks with Sophia Bruckner. Happy holidays to all of our listeners. Please stay safe this holiday season and wear your mask. And of course, it is that time of year to show your love for Digital Village and KPFK by making that end of year gift. You can call 818-985-5735 or go to kpfk.org forward slash donate. We wish all of our listeners peace and calm in these final days of 2020 and a big socially distanced hug to all of our supporting members. You can donate and keep this glorious independent listener sponsored radio going at KPFK by going to kpfk.org forward slash donate. That's it for Digital Village's holiday special. You can hear this episode again by visiting the archives at kpfk.org, subscribing to the Digital Village podcast, or going to digitalvillage.org. 
You can follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio. A special thank you to Evo Jansen for our theme music and, of course, Digital Village contributing reporter Leilani Albano. We'll be back with weekly episodes in the new year. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. And we'll, we'll see, see you online. online.